In our sermon from Colossians, we're going to be looking at the, the circumcision of Christ. And it's helpful to look in the Old Testament to see where that comes from. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 17 as we read the Bible together now. Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14. This is where God establishes the covenant of circumcision with his people, starting with Abraham. So Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Let's pray for God's help as we come to come to his word. Lord, we are here to uh, here to hear from you. And we pray that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and understanding so that we may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You've told us that if we know you and Jesus Christ that we have eternal life. And we pray that that would be true as we hear from you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning our sermon is coming from Colossians chapter 2 verses 11 through 12. That's Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. It's been a few weeks since we've been in Colossians. Jeff Downs was here preaching. Then last week was Easter, so we heard from Matthew 28. But we're returning to uh, the book of Colossians. As we do that, I'm actually going to read the, the whole chapter or the whole section here in Colossians chapter 2 to, to remind us of where we've been. Uh, If you remember, the main point of these verses, 8 through 15, is really that we need to be holding on to Christ. We need to be holding fast to Christ. We We don't need to be believing 
false teaching. It's a danger that's facing the Colossians. And that's what Paul's writing here. So I'm going to read the whole, the whole section, 8 to 15, but our, our sermon text is actually just going to be in the middle in verses 11 through 12. So listen carefully. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You know, in this, in this section of Colossians, Paul is giving really three reasons why we should not believe false teaching. And we looked at that first one in verses 9 through 10, the last time that we were in Colossians. Paul says, don't believe false teaching because we have a fullness in Christ that you can't find anywhere else. Jesus Christ is fully God, and we actually share in the blessings that come from that. That was the reason we saw last time of why we should not believe false teaching. Now, Paul in verses 11 through 12 is going to give us a second reason He says, don't believe false teaching because you have been circumcised in Christ. We have been circumcised with Christ. I doubt any one of us woke up this morning and thought, I'm so glad that I've been circumcised in Christ. I don't think anyone thought that this morning. But if you're a believer, that's actually the reality that you were living in when you woke up this morning. Because being circumcised with Christ is a very striking way to describe salvation. And each one of us this morning woke up, if we're in Christ, we woke up saved by him. That's what Paul is talking about, our salvation in Jesus Christ. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us, our sinful natures are done away with, they're cut off. And he calls us and enables us to live a new life in Christ. That really points us to the main point of these two verses. That we should hold fast to Christ because God has taken away our sinful natures and he has given us new life in Christ alone. Again, we should hold fast to Christ because in Christ God has taken away our sinful natures and he's given us new life. And both of those things are only found in Christ. Now, Paul looks at this truth from two different but related perspectives, you could say. First, in verse 11, he says we are circumcised in Christ. And then in verse 12, he says we are baptized with Christ. So circumcised with Christ and baptized with Christ. And we're going to use those two basic points this morning. 
Let's start with Paul in verse 11 to see that we are circumcised with Christ. This is how he begins. He says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Paul is is reaching back into the Old Testament to describe our salvation in Christ. If you remember, circumcision in the Old Testament is a picture of our salvation in Jesus Christ. The actual act of circumcision is cutting off a piece of skin, but God gave that act great meaning and importance. It's similar to what we're going to do soon in the Lord's Supper. If you think about what's in front of us, it's just bread and it's just wine and grape juice, just ordinary things. But God chose to use these things of bread and wine and what we do with them, eating and drinking, to show us Jesus Christ and his work of salvation for us. And then not only to show it to us, but then also to apply the benefits of Jesus's work to us. Just like that was true in the Lord's Supper is true, that was also true in circumcision in the Old Testament. Circumcision, just like the Lord's Supper, just like baptism, is a sacrament. Again, it was a sacrament in the Old Testament. We don't do it now. It's done away with. But it was one of the sacraments. And as a sacrament, it's a visible sermon. When the Israelites were circumcised, God was proclaiming to them Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for their sins. So what did circumcision in the Old Testament, what did it teach people about their salvation in Jesus? Well, first, circumcision showed God's covenant with his people. Remember that covenant? What is a covenant? It's that relationship that God enters into with us. It's that special relationship that he has with his people. It says, I am your God and you are my people. That's one of the things that circumcision showed. We saw that actually in Genesis 17. When God speaks to Abraham there, that's the first time that he's ever commanded his people to do this. And he says, it is a sign of my covenant with you. And not just with you, Abraham, but with all of your offspring. This is an eternal covenant I'm making with my people. Being in a special relationship with God like that, though, also means that we must obey God's laws. If you remember, Israel was called to be a holy people, obeying God, staying away from sin. And so circumcision was also a reminder to Israel about the need for obedience as God's people. And finally, circumcision showed Israel the need for salvation. They needed God to do something. They needed him not just for something outward. They needed God to produce an inward change in their hearts. Now, Moses taught the people of Israel about this very need. In Deuteronomy, this is what Moses tells them. He says, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Right? That, that circumcision, it points to a heart problem. It points to our problem with sin. Circumcision shows us that we need heart surgery to actually fix our problem of sin. And later in Deuteronomy, Moses goes on to show the people that God's the one who's going to do that. Toward the end of the book, he says this. It's a gracious promise. Listen. And the Lord your God, not you anymore, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. He'll do that work. 
And you will circumcise the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It's the Lord who's going to change the heart of his people. He will save us so that we will serve him. That's the promise of Deuteronomy. So circumcision in the Old Testament was pointing the people to their covenant with God, to the obedience that he called them to, and to the salvation that he gives them. That physical sign was pointing them to those spiritual realities. And when Paul here in verse 11 says that we've been circumcised in Christ, he's saying that those very same spiritual realities that circumcision pointed to, they're now ours. They've been done to us. You were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands. It's not, it's not circumcision done by a person. It's done by God. And it's not in our bodies. It's actually done in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul is describing our salvation. That's what his point is here. That God now has brought us into a covenant relationship with himself. We're now God's people. In Romans 8, Paul points that out. That the true people of God are not those who've just been outwardly circumcised like a Jew. The true people of God who are in a relationship with him are the ones that he has done that heart surgery on to bring them into his into relationship with him. He's brought us to himself and he's also cut us off from sin, right? He has replaced our sinful natures with obedient hearts. That's what God has done. Now, Paul describes how this change has happened. How do we get here? He says that this has happened by putting off the body of flesh. The, the, the body of flesh. You know, Paul sometimes uses flesh, right? Just to mean something like a, a human nature. Like, I've got a real body. A body of flesh. I've got a real soul. He's actually done that earlier in the book of Colossians when he describes what Christ has done to die for us. He says that he, he reconciled us to God in his body of flesh by his death. Just making the point that Christ had a real body. He really died for us. He really obeyed in our place. But I think here in, in Colossians 2, Paul is actually using flesh in a, another way he uses it when he's talking about sin. Something that's sinful, something that's bad, something that's corrupted. The body of flesh then is like our, our sinful nature, really. Paul will talk about this in other ways. He calls it the old man. Actually, in the very next chapter in Colossians 3, he calls it elsewhere the body of sin in Romans 6. But Paul's point is that we each have this sinful nature. We have this body of flesh, and it has to be put off. That's the only way we're ever going to be right with God. It has to be put off. God says time and time again that each one of us is a sinner. Romans 5, we're all in Adam. Each one of us is born in Adam, and we've inherited a sinful nature from Adam. You know, some people will say that, you know, you're, you're rotten to the core. Actually, the Bible says it's the other way around. You're rotten from the core because your very nature is opposed to God. And then we actually make that problem worse, right? We make that problem worse by all the sins that we do. Jesus uses the picture of a tree. He says, if there is a a sinful tree, a bad tree, do you think it's going to produce good fruit? No, it won't do that because it's its nature. It will only produce bad fruit. And that's what we've done in our own lives. 
We have the fruit of, of anger, fruit of pride, sexual immorality, hurtful words. So many other things could go in that list. But that's who we are. And that means that you and I desperately need heart surgery. We need our sins forgiven, yes, but we also need our sinful natures removed, completely taken out. You know, a few years ago, my father-in-law, you you met him a few weeks ago when he was visiting, a few years ago, he needed heart surgery in a really serious way. It was a very serious situation. He needed almost emergency heart surgery. But what what if he had told that doctor, doctor, I'm so thankful for what you're offering me. I'm thankful that you can do this great surgery. You can save my life. I've got it, though. I'm going to do this on myself. No, you would know that that surgery is going to fail. There is no way that he is going to do surgery on himself. It's ridiculous. But that's actually so often what we do with our sinful nature. We try to fix ourselves, but we can't fix ourselves. We can't just be good enough. We can't just go to church or or pray more often or do more good things. None of that is ever going to fix our deepest problem. We need God's work. That's exactly what God has promised he's going to do. That's what he's promised all the way from the Old Testament. We saw that in the passage of circumcision. He promised to do the work that his people needed. We see that promise even more clearly when God talks about the new covenant that he's bringing, a place like Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleansed from all your uncleanliness and from your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is what God has done for us In Jesus Christ. Paul says that God has done that. He's taken away our sinful natures, our hearts of stone, and he's given us hearts of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That's the way God acts. When Paul talks about the circumcision of Christ, he's actually talking about Jesus' death. It's true that that Jesus was, was physically circumcised when he was a little boy, eight days old. But Paul means so much more here when he talks about this. Remember that physical circumcision in the Old Testament was always pointing forward. It was pointing to the gospel. It was actually pointing to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now, when there was circumcision, there was blood. There was a little bit of pain. But circumcision is a picture. It's a picture of our sin being dealt with in a costly way, in a painful way. And this is what we see with Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Our salvation, our freedom from sin cost him his life. It's not just a tiny piece of skin. But as Jesus is circumcised on the cross through his death, Paul actually reminds us of another connection that we share in what he's doing. Listen to what he says in Romans 6 says, we know that our old self, I think our body of flesh, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. A little bit further in Romans 6, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. 
Paul says that Christ on the cross died to sin. Not just that he died for sin, that's true, but also that he died to sin. There's a freedom there in those words. There's a freedom from sin. Not not from his own sins. We know Christ never sinned. So he wasn't dying to free himself. No, but at the cross, he broke the power of sin for us. He actually conquered death, the consequence, the penalty, the wages of sin. And he broke that in our lives. When Christ died to sin, our old selves, our sinful natures were crucified with him. They were done away with. Maybe I can put it in terms of of circumcision again. On the cross, our sinful natures were, were cut off. They were cut off from us as Christ himself cut off the power and the penalty of sin for his people. And it's our connection to Christ that makes all the difference. Did you see that? Actually, how Paul begins this verse, he says, In him you also have been circumcised. See, Christ's death does not save you unless you are united to Christ by faith. There's no benefit for you in Christ's death. But the salvation that that Christ accomplished in his circumcision on the cross is applied to you, is applied to you and I by the Holy Spirit. And that's when our circumcision takes place, when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, when the Holy Spirit gives us faith, he gives us the forgiveness that we need, and he brings us to new obedience. That is our salvation in Jesus Christ. Now Paul describes that again as being circumcised in Christ. And in verse 12, Paul describes that very same reality from a new perspective. He says it's being baptized with Christ. And that's our second point, being baptized with Christ in verse 12. As Paul moves on to explain baptism and how that shows us Jesus Christ, he shows us that in baptism, we're actually united to Christ in both his burial and in his resurrection. Notice what Paul says. He says, You have been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Baptism is is a sacrament of the New Testament. It's given to us by Jesus Christ. And just like circumcision, baptism is more than just a picture, right? There's certainly the physical sign of being, you know, having water poured over you, being washed with water. But then there's also the spiritual reality that that's pointing you to of being united to Christ in his burial and resurrection. I want you to think of the last baptism you saw. I think in this congregation, it might have been Lydia. It might be the last one that some of you have seen. When, when you saw a baby getting baptized, last one, just think, again, think of the last one. Is the first thing that you thought of union with Christ, being buried with him in baptism and raised with him to new life? Probably not. Probably not. And that's okay. We see a washing away of sins in baptism, right? That's the picture. And someone coming into the church, all those are, are very valid. Those are true as well, because baptism is actually showing us many truths about our, about our salvation. Remember, it's a visible sermon. Sacrament is a visible sermon to you. But Paul makes clear to us in Colossians 2, actually also in Romans 6 that we looked at earlier, that baptism is a sign and seal of being buried with Christ and also being raised with him. Listen again to Romans 6, 4. 
We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of our Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There's a deep connection that we have in Christ in baptism. Now some Christians have read these these kinds of verses in Colossians and Romans and, and they've rightly seen the connection that we have in Christ. They've rightly seen that picture of union in baptism. But then they've gone a step further and said that we must baptize in a way that shows the burial and resurrection of Christ. That we need to be immersed in water. We need to be put in water and then brought out to really show what's going on in baptism. You may have seen that. You may have experienced it yourself. I'm just going to say, no, that's not necessary to baptism. If you make immersion a requirement, you're actually going beyond what Scripture says about baptism. And you're also missing out on some of the other symbolism of what's going on in baptism, even simply being sprinkled from our, cleansed from our sins, sprinkling of water. But those, those individuals who have, who have gone that direction have seen something that we need to recognize as well, that baptism is a picture, a real picture of being joined to Christ. And if you think about what Paul is saying here, it is really extraordinary. It's really deep. In baptism, we're actually united to Christ in all of his experience. You know, Paul, Paul doesn't say that baptism itself unites you to Christ. It's not like I pour water on you and presto, you're joined to Jesus. It doesn't work like that. There's, there's not grace in the sacrament itself. But the Holy Spirit actually takes the spiritual reality, that union with Christ, being joined to Christ, faith in Christ, And he takes that and he applies that to us. He brings us to faith. So what baptism pointed us to, we actually take hold of. It's showing us Jesus and we actually then believe in him through the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit does that, when he actually brings us to faith and unites us to Christ, again, he's applying to us what baptism pointed us toward. And how does he do that? Well, he does it by faith. Paul actually highlights the importance of faith right here in verse 12. He says, You were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This is a, this is a, a very important reminder to us of the central place that faith has in our salvation. We are united to Christ by faith. And Paul focuses on faith in our powerful God. See, he says that we need to actually believe in the mighty working of God. And God's power was on full display when he raised Jesus from the dead. And it's by believing in this powerful God, the fact that he can raise Jesus. And if he can raise Jesus, he can most certainly save me. If we believe in that God, then God joins us to Jesus in resurrection life. But why is it so important? Why is it so important that we have been baptized with him into his death and burial and been raised with him to resurrection life? Why do we need to share those things with Jesus? Well, it means that what is true of Christ is now true of us. That's the the foundation here. What is true of Christ is true of us. It's one of the most important truths in the entire Christian life. Paul explains some of the benefits again in Romans 6. He says, with Christ we have died to sin and now we live to righteousness. So being buried with Christ and then being raised with him is the basis for our holiness. I said something similar last week as we looked at the resurrection. 
the only way that we can actually grow in holiness, obedience and love and service to God is if we are raised with Christ, if we're actually sharing in eternal life, the life of heaven right now. That's how you're going to be holy. That's how I'm going to be holy, sharing in what Jesus is living right now. You know, we, we all struggle with sin. That's a reality for us, right? We know what that fight is like. It's a constant battle in the life of the believer. But do you know why there's even a battle in your life against sin? There's only a battle if you have been raised with Christ. His resurrection power is what's making you hate your sin. It's what's making you fight. And it's what's giving you the strength to keep fighting. Jesus' resurrection life in you right now. Jesus' resurrection power, his life in you also guarantees the success of fighting against sin. It gives you hope that this is going somewhere because in his resurrection, think about what Jesus did. He defeated sin. He defeated Satan. He even defeated death. And that means that no sin in your life, no sin in my life is any match for Jesus Christ. He may choose to work slowly on your sin. He may choose to work holiness slowly, sanctification slowly, obedience slowly. But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, then the guarantee is that there will be changes in your life. There will be. Even the thief on the cross, if you think about it, he maybe believed in Jesus for a few hours before he died. Even in him, the resurrection power of Christ was at work to bring him even closer to his Savior who is dying right next to him. And if that's true for the thief, how much more for you? As you believed in Christ and you have a whole lifetime to be made more like Jesus, you will be able to obey more and more. You will value the things that Jesus Christ values. You will value God and your relationship with God. You will value holiness and obedience. You will value His church. You will value His Word. And just as you're going to value those things, Jesus' resurrection power means you're going to hate other things. You are more and more going to hate sin in your life and the life of others. You're going to hate evil and the fallenness of our world. And you are going to hate sin and Satan. When you and I are struggling with sin, it is so tempting. It is so tempting to give up. But when you're tempted and tempted to give up, when you're discouraged with how you're doing, come back to a verse like this. I know this might not seem like a go-to verse, when you're struggling with sin, but it is. Because this is what is true of you now in Christ. Pray that God would give you the power or the encouragement or the perseverance or whatever you need in that situation because you know why? It's yours in Christ. All of those things are part of the resurrection life that Jesus has given you. But there's more as we look at Jesus' resurrection. If we've been buried with Him, we've also been raised with Him, that, that means... We're going to be with him too. We're still looking forward to the resurrection of the dead. The biggest changes are yet to come when we're finally made perfect and when he returns and we're going to join him with fully perfect bodies. What Paul is saying here to the Colossians and what Paul is saying to us is really amazing. Look at what you have in Christ. 
He's saying, look Christ full in the face. Look at what you have in Him. Your sins have been dealt with. Yes, there's still a battle with sin. Yes, that's true. But we don't serve sin and Satan anymore. We don't serve them. Our hearts, our natures have been irreversibly changed. We're not going back. And we have holiness now. And we have the hope of heaven. And Paul says, you have this in Christ. Why would you look anywhere else? Why would you look anywhere else? But the reality for the Colossians, the reality for us is the same, that there are many false gospels out there. There are many fake saviors. There are many counterfeit communities that are very attractive to us. They're offering us things that, oh, maybe I, maybe I can't find that here. Maybe I need to go and listen to this or, or do this or be there. They're never going to do it. They're never going to help you because they can never deal with your sin. None of those things can deal with your sin. The only way that you and your sin are ever dealt with is if you're circumcised with Christ. If you've been buried with him in his death and raised with him in his life. If you have been saved by Christ. That's the bottom line. If you've been saved by Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. That's all you need. You have everything that you need in Christ. I can just encourage you then, as you go forward in this week, make this a point of praise. I've said it before, we can't run out of things to praise God for, and it's so true. But here's one verse, maybe just take it this week and give thanks day after day for what God has done in Jesus Christ. Praise Him for what He's done and keep coming back here for the power you need to get through today, to get through tomorrow, and for the rest of your life. Because we have what we need in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, it's easy to say, but hard to do. We see that we have been saved by Jesus Christ. We've been circumcised with him. And Lord, we're now in a new relationship with you. We're your people. We've been saved by you. You're at work in our lives. Lord, we pray that we would keep coming back there. That we would never outgrow the gospel. Lord, keep us from trusting in ourselves. Keep us from trusting in any other thing but in Jesus Christ alone. Lord, we pray that you would walk alongside us this week and with the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you would enable us to serve you well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.